Jesus questioned about fasting. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? (coughs) Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he was and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said, said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them and in anger and deep distress of their stubborn hearts said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So far the reading of God's word. Thank you, Tinny. Uh, please don't uh, fall to the temptation of putting your Bible aside. Um, you're going to need it. We're going to work our way through these verses. There's lots of uh, details in there which can seem a bit strange to us uh, and we're going to be trying to work our way through them together this morning so you'll be well served if you can follow uh, as we do that together. Now, I'm guessing you're probably aware of the, the TV show Antique Roadshow. Um, you may not be a dedicated watcher of it. It's kind of the thing that's just on on a Saturday when you're bored and it's raining and you flick the TV on. Uh, if you've never seen it, you might understand the premise. Uh, you have a team of experts uh, who are familiar with antiques, I guess, and old things. And they go uh, to some fancy location, a castle or a big manor house. They, they set up their show. And anyone in the area can bring all of their old family heirlooms, all of their relics and antiques to come along and be appraised. Are they trash or have I been sitting on a gold mine? Are they treasure? 
Uh, it's always a surprise. Uh, I'm no expert, that will not surprise anyone, but I'm no expert in antiques. I know nothing about them. But you see some of the things that they bring in. Uh, they're, they're worn, they're old and they're dirty and they place them on the table very carefully because, you know, family heirloom. And you think, it wouldn't even sell at a garage sale for two bucks. You know, it's, it's trash. Why even bother? I'm thinking, you know, pennies, it's not going to be worth a thing. And the expert, the expert looks at this and you can kind of see their eyes light up and you can see their agitation and they're talking and they're talking about this thing and how amazing it is. They're like, it's worth thousands. <laughs> 10,000 pounds, you're rich. And the, the person is ecstatic, clearly. But then the next person brings in something different and this thing looks great. Like, it's clean. It has clearly been well looked after. It looks wonderful. If it's in an antique shop, it's going in the window, window on a pedestal. It looks great. And they're excited. They're clearly excited. That person got £10,000. You know, <laughs> What's mine going to get? And the expert looks at it and looks at it. Uh, it's just a replica. <laughs> £100 for you. And they're, they're devastated. They're shocked, aren't they? And it reminds you again that they're just looking at things differently. They're looking at things different to, to, to you and I. They're not like you and I. They see things differently. They see them for what they really are. That they see beyond our impressions, beyond our first understanding, and see things for what they actually are. And that's what Jesus is doing in these passages that we read, in these verses in Mark's book. He is showing us a different way to look at the world, a new way to look at the world. In fact, he's helping us by opening our eyes to see the world as he does, to see things as they truly are. Now, what he's doing is showing us a vision that is beautiful, but it's also confronting. He promises all sorts of good things. We're going to see he promises fulfilment. He promises joy. He promises life itself. But he also confronts us because he also shows us our shortcomings, our misunderstandings, and he calls us to change. Because what we see in Jesus, yes, it is a new way, it is a beautiful way, but it is also a radical way, a way that was uh, controversial in his day and a way that is no less controversial in our day too. And we're going to see that as we work through these little stories this morning. Uh, you might have noticed as Tenny read them for us, each of them is structured kind of the same. There's, there's a confrontation, uh, a question asked of Jesus, either stated or unstated, and then Jesus jumps into that opportunity. Uh, look with me at verse 18, the first of those questions. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Uh, some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? We don't know why they were fasting, we're not told. Um, originally in the law that God gave to his people, there was only one fast per year, it was an important one but just one day. Over time, uh, lots and lots of other fasts had come in to the point that in Jesus' day, the really dedicated people would fast maybe once, uh, maybe even twice a week. So it's something they did a lot. It was a mark of being really dedicated. Uh, what does fasting mean? Well, you can kind of just understand it best by saying it's the opposite of feasting. Feasting is all about celebration. Fasting is all about mourning. It's all about sadness. It's all about 
expressing regret. But it's also a sign of, of looking forwards. You know, when you're fasting, you're anticipating the time when your fast is over, when good times are restored to you. And not just in, in the sense of a day-by-day fast, but fasting in, in Jewish thinking looked forward to an ultimate restoration, a day when things would be made right forever, when God would act. Fasting was a big deal. And Jesus' disciples weren't doing it. It was a scandal. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and on that day they will fast. Why why are my followers not fasting? Well, how could they? Why would they? The, the, the feast is here. The wedding has come. It's time of ultimate celebration. It's a time of joy. It's a time of happiness. How could he possibly fast now? How do we know all this has come? Well, Jesus says, the bridegroom's here. The wedding's begun. The feast is here. And Jesus says, it's me. Now is the time for joy. Now is the time for celebration. It is feast time. But he's actually picking up on something really important here. Uh, It's not just any old description of himself. He's not just painting a picture. He's picking up on an idea that we find in the Old Testament. If you go back five, six hundred years before this day, we go to the book of Isaiah. And and in that, God is saying to his people again and again, I'm going to come, I'm going to help, I'm going to rescue, I'm going to make things right. And this is what God says in Isaiah 62 verse 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God saying, I'm going to come. I'm going to come and make things right. It's going to be time for celebration and restoration and joy. I'm going to be like a bridegroom to you. And Jesus says, that's me. It's here. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the joy bringer. I'm the rescuer, restorer. I am God come to earth to make things right. This is huge news. Jesus is saying, it's here. Everything you've waited for, it's arrived. The bridegroom is here. Now, of course, there is a time of sadness ahead. Uh, Jesus makes mention of that, a time where the bridegroom will be taken away and where joy will be interrupted. Obviously, no one at the time understood that. We know where the story is going. We know he's talking about his death. But the focus here is on what he's bringing as the bridegroom. The joy and rescue and restoration. Look at verses 21 and 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. What Jesus is coming to bring is, is so big, uh, so beautiful, so wonderful that what was in place, the old system, simply can't hold it. Uh, it's a picture of great joy. Jesus picks up on this idea of new wine, which is again a reference to the Old Testament. Uh, God says when he will restore his people in Amos 9, he says, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, 
and all the hills shall flow with it. Jesus is referring to that. He's saying that sort of abundance, that sort of uh, sheer celebration and, and, and joy, that's now. And it is so big, so good, that all your old patterns, all your old ways of thinking can't possibly contain it. I mean, I'm not a seamstress, uh, but you get the picture, the, the unshrunk cloth on old clothing, it's just going to pull it away. It's going to tear it, make it worse. Uh, I am a brewer, so I get the next picture a bit better. Uh, new, you know, still fermenting wine into old, inflexible skins. It's just going to expand. It's going to burst them. Everything's going to be ruined. It's going to be a mess. It can't be contained. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing bringing something new, something good. I am the rescuer, restorer, the bridegroom, bringing the kingdom of God. It is going to be huge. It is so big, so good, that it will explode any old ways of thinking. It can't be contained by them. And so we have to do away with them. They have to entirely go to make way for what I'm bringing. Uh, at home we've got a, a deck, a timber deck. Uh, I like timber decks. Um, it's safer than concrete. It's nicer than concrete. You can drop something on timber and it may not break as opposed to concrete. Uh, what I didn't realise when we put a timber deck in is that it's also a lot more work uh, than a concrete deck. Um, everyone told me, but of course you don't realise. Uh, and so last month again I found myself putting a new coat of oil on our deck again um, of course, it's not, if you've ever done it, you'll know it's not a simple process. You can't just slap it on uh, as if you'd like. It just won't work. Uh, instead, before, you have to prepare the old deck. Uh, you can't just clean it you know, like I normally clean things. You have to clean it well. You have to clean it painstakingly. In fact, there's three stages to clean it. You, scrub, you treat it and scrub it. You brush it and scrub it. You wash it and scrub it. And then you pressure wash it just for fun at the end. <laughs> it is fun if anyone wants to come and help. <laughs> because the thing is, if you have any old oil, any old dirt, anything whatsoever on that timber before you put the oil on again, it's just not going to take. It's going to stick out. It will need treatment again. It'll look terrible. Before you put the new one, all of the old, absolutely all of the old, has to go because it doesn't fit with the new. Jesus says the same with my coming. The old has to go. It won't fit. The new is too big. It's too good. It's too wonderful. It's incompatible. They can't be put together. It can't be contained by that. And so it has to go. All, all the joy that I'm bringing, the plenty and restoration and hope and, and beauty I've come to bring, it just doesn't fit with your old human systems of thinking. They have to go. Uh, when, I, when I was back at school, in high school, a Christian school, uh, there was a quote going around. I don't know where the quote came from, but everyone was saying it. You know, don't put God in a box, man. kind of felt like that sort of saying. Don't put God in a box. It was kind of, I don't know why we said it. It was just kind of the way to finish every sort of argument. You couldn't talk back against that. You don't put God in a box. And it's kind of what Jesus is saying here. The new way I'm bringing, the new thing, the, this, this new kingdom, you can't put it in a box. You can't fit it. It won't fit any human system, any human way. It's, it's too big. It, it blows them all apart. It can't be contained. And to try would be to ruin it. 
These old Jewish ways that he's bumping up against here, that the elaborately constructed uh, rules around fasting and obedience and, and all sorts of strictness, they can't contain him. He's bigger, he's better, he's more wonderful. He burst all their ways of thinking. Instead, they have to fit him in instead. But it's not just them. It's the same for us as well. We, we can't fit Jesus into our patterns, into our ways of thinking. He's more than just a teacher. He's more than just a nice guy. He's more than a moral example. He's more than a revolutionary or whatever you would like him to be. I mean, look at what he claims. He claims to be a king. He claims to be a ruler. He claims to be Lord. He does all sorts of things that are actually kind of harsh and rude. He asks for not friends, but followers. He just doesn't fit our boxes. He doesn't work in with our systems of thinking. He just blows them to pieces. And I think sometimes we'd kind of like Jesus to do that. It'd be nice to you know, be able to incorporate Jesus in, into your life. and you know, He'd be a handy addition, a nice guy to have in your corner. But he doesn't fit there. It doesn't work like that. You can't fit Jesus into your life, into your way. Instead, you have to be fit into his and into him. It's a lot harder. It's far more radical. But what he's telling us here is, it's better. Because then, all that he promises, good and abundance and joy and celebration, are yours to receive. How does that work? Well, he shows us in the next confrontation. It takes place in a field on the Sabbath. Uh, Look at verse 23 and 24. One Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to them, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? It's kind of a strange scene, isn't it? You, You try to picture what's going on you know, nice afternoon stroll, Jesus and his disciples walking through the fields. You know, they're a bit hungry, so they're casually picking grain from the, the plants nearby and just rubbing it, eating it, as you do. And then you've got the Pharisees. I don't know how this looked, but the Pharisees over there, you know, watching, or spying maybe, or keeping a close eye on, on Jesus and his friends, trying to pick any fault. You know, is he going to stumble? Is he going to trip? What's he, what's he going to do? Is he going to do something wrong again? And they find one. They're picking grain on the Sabbath. <laughs> like, so what? So what? Why does it matter? We need to understand what the Sabbath meant uh, to Jews at the time. Uh, if we rewind all the way back to the start of the Bible, we see that uh, when God created the world, he created in six days, he rested one day and he gave that pattern to humanity. He called it a Sabbath. He said, rest is part of who you are. This, this Sabbath, it's part of who you are. It's good. He later ingrained it in Israel's law. There was one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, observe the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. Instead, rest. Rest as I've always intended you to do. Enjoy me. Be, uh, worship me. Don't work. Take that day seems very straightforward uh, and it's a good thing. But over time, uh, people started to ask the question, well, what's work? Now, they're not asking that question 
well, at first they asked that question in order to keep the law well, but over time they asked that question in order to, uh, you know, kind of justify themselves. I, 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 if I know what work is and I know what I can do on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees over time worked out over 600 laws, kind of drawing a box around what is work and what is not to preserve the Sabbath. And it was extreme. You know, you can walk 999 steps, but not 1,000. That's work. You can uh, prepare food, but if you're going to cook food, you have to light the fire the day before. You can't light a fire on the Sabbath. That's work. Uh, Types of exercise. You can raise your hands to here, but that's work. So keep them here. And you definitely can't pick grain because that is work. They'd caught Jesus out. They had him. Or so they thought. Look at verse 25. He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Uh, There's kind of three levels to Jesus' argument here. The first uh, level is precedence. He says, remember what David did. You know, King David, famous hero, greatest king you ever had hundreds of years before. Well, remember that time. He and his men were on a mission. They were hungry. They were in need. And they turned up at their version of church. And the only food they had was the bread for the priests. Now that bread was special, it was dedicated to priests. Only priests could eat it, that's what the law said. And yet what did they do? Well they decided the law gave way to need and they ate the bread. There's precedence here. But Jesus says there's also a place here. He says remember, remember what the law is for. Remember what place the law has. Remember man's not created for the law as if the law was first and man was created to fit in with it. Instead man was created first, the law was created second to help Man, it wasn't there to be a burden to him, it was there to help him. The law was to help us live near to God and close to God and enjoy God. The law was to help us taste his promises and delight in him. The law's for us, not us for it. Remember its place. But finally, remember the person. Jesus is a son of man. We, we explored that last week. We saw it's a picture of great authority and power and divinity. Jesus says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's about him. It's, it's for him. He is over it. Lord of it. In fact, he's saying it all actually points to him. It's all about him. Remember the person. And Jesus says... That's me. That's me. I am the Son of Man. I am Lord, even of the Sabbath. Therefore, I'm not bound by your man-made rules. Not only, uh, I'm not only just above the law. He says, in fact, the law is actually all about me. It's all for me and it's all about what I've come to bring. I don't know if you've ever heard this line and you find it in old westerns and cop movies, you know, the, the crusty old sheriff, Clint Eastwood usually, he's six-shooter and he's growling at some criminal, I am the law, you know, that's a shocking 
Clint Eastwood uh, impersonation, sorry for that. But, but you've heard the line, I am the law. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is saying here. But he's saying so much more than that. The sheriff kind of makes that claim to, to, to actually break the law, doesn't he? To go above it and, and, and redefine it. It's actually kind of a lawlessness. But Jesus is saying, that I'm the fulfilment of the law, in fact. I'm not breaking it. I'm the one it's pointing to. I'm the one that, that, that it's all about. I, I'm him. I'm it. So the Pharisees had this, this incredibly well-defined and set way of thinking and Jesus comes in and he just blows it all to pieces. He, he explodes it all over the place like new wine in old wineskins. It doesn't fit. He says it's not first above the, about the rules. He said it's not even first about you. He said first of all, it's about me, the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath. It's about him. I think that's kind of hard for us to hear. It's kind of hard because we actually like, we actually like rules. Now, we, we often say, don't say that. We often say we don't like rules. But in actual fact, we like doing. We like knowing what to do. We like having well-defined boundaries. We know, like having instructions and guidelines. We actually like rules. And so we're a bit like Pharisees at times. And we can approach, uh, be that way in our Christian life, can't we? It's so easy for us to make being a Christian all about doing. You know, maybe not rules, we don't like that word, but about doing the right thing. Or about doing certain things and not other things. I know many of you have grown up in the church. Uh, do you remember what Sundays were like as a kid? Bop de Sunday. That's, that's even worse than my Clint Eastwood impersonation. But do you remember what it's like? Rules, not, not about usually what you can do, but rules about what you can't do. Not stated rules, but definitely understood. You cannot do this. Did those rules make us enjoy God more or less? Did they help us rest more or less? But it's, it's so much more than that, isn't it? I mean, there's still rules, aren't there? Certain things we can and can't do in church, perhaps. Certain ways to come in or things to do here or how to act. Unstated rules again, but the right thing. But it's not just there. We have so many other rules in our lives. Rules about how much prayer is good. You know, I feel good if I pray this many times, that's good, but not if I pray this many times, that's bad. I feel good if I pray, uh, read my Bible five times in a week, that's good, but if I don't, that's bad. I mean, what other rules do we have? We set them in all sorts of life. We, we judge ourselves, we judge others by them. If you do this, that's good. If you do that, that's bad. We, we live by these rules. And Jesus is saying, that's not what it's about at all. It's not about those rules, it's all about him. It's all about him as Lord. It's all about him at the centre and at the fulfilment of all. It's all about Jesus. Enjoying him, resting in him, glorifying him. Rules take that away. And what he is saying is, he's here to give it back. 
I mean, you know what it's like, what rules do to you. You know, someone uh, comes to you and says, you have to do the dishes. And you say, I don't want to do the dishes. You say, uh, you have to do the dishes. You don't have a choice or else. So you do the dishes and you hate it. You grumble and you, you complain and you think horrible things about doing dishes. You don't enjoy it at all. But another time you see that the dishes need to be done you know that that would be helpful. You want to love the very same person who in another situation might tell you to do them. You do them off your own accord and you can do them even happily. I mean, doing dishes can even be, dare I say it, good. Jesus is saying that's what this is all about. It's about him. Not about the rules, but about him. Not about being bound, but about being free to enjoy him. How radical is that? How much does that change the way we approach our life? How much does that change the way we, we look at all these things that might otherwise be to us burdens, but can instead be joys? How does that change how we look at what happens on Sunday? How does that change the way we approach our reading of the Bible or the way we approach prayer or the way we think about sharing the gospel with people? How does it change about the way we give to our church or serve our church or obey even when it's difficult? I mean, remembering it's about Jesus. Not about following the rules, but instead delighting in him and following him and loving him and centering our lives on him. Now, of course, this is not a call to lawlessness, as if we just go out and do what we want. Instead, it's a call to freedom and to joy and even to delight in service to him. It is higher, it is harder, but it is better. And it's what Jesus has come to bring to and for us. And it is good. It is good what Jesus is bringing. And we see that in the very last story in this section. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. I mean, can, you, can you feel the tension uh, of this picture? Synagogue on a Sabbath, they, they didn't sit in rows like this, they kind of sat in a, in a U or in a circle around the central place. They're all sitting there, they're all waiting and Jesus is there. What's he going to do today? His opponents are off in one corner and they are watching his every move like a hawk looking for an opportunity. You know, their, their hostility is, is palpable. You can feel it. You can cut the atmosphere with a knife. And here comes an opportunity. Maybe, maybe even a setup. There is a man there with a ruined hand. What will Jesus do? Will Jesus dare to heal him here on the Sabbath? Will he dare to break the Sabbath, at least in the Pharisees' eyes? I mean, their rules, not the Bible's rules, their rules said that on a Sabbath only life-threatening issues, uh, life-threatening injuries could be healed. This is clearly not. What's Jesus going to do? The trap is set. It's there waiting. And Jesus just ploughs on through it. Look at verse 3 and 4. 
Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. I see what he does. He, he flips it around, doesn't he? The trap was set for him, but he's trapped them. I mean, what a question. Pharisees, what's lawful? To do right or wrong? To do good or evil? To kill or to bring life. I mean, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? He's flipped it around, and what an irony he's exposed. You know, there are the Pharisees. They are, they are waiting to see if Jesus will do good in order to accuse him of bad. Whilst they want to trap him for doing good, they themselves are plotting evil. And Jesus answers his own questions. Verse 5. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. I mean, how frustrated must he have been by them? I mean, Jesus, Jesus knows the purpose of the law better than anyone. He knows the law is here to do good. He knows it's here to bring life and to bless and help. And he looks at these men, experts in the law, and all they can do is be trapped by their own interpretations and out of fear of breaking the law instead of doing good, doing evil instead. They were so trapped in their own thoughts. It's a bit like the Titanic all over again. I mean, you know the story of the Titanic. World's greatest ocean liner, incredible luxury, thought to be unsinkable. You know, the pinnacle of technology at the time. Uh, its makers, its captains were, were so uh, convinced of its strength and of its safety that they were willing to ignore any uh, right safety measures that they should have kept uh, paid attention to. I mean, that, that they couldn't even imagine a situation in which either its strength or its safety would be com compromised. They were, they were so stuck, uh, so blinkered by their view of this ship. So they didn't care there was too few lifeboats on the boat. I mean, what, is, what does it matter? They didn't care that they were travelling at risky speeds, even though there were icebergs in the area. What does it matter? It's unsinkable. They were so stuck, so blinkered. Even after they hit the iceberg, they didn't think there was an emergency. There's no danger. This boat's not going down. So they didn't call for help until the last moment. They didn't call for evacuation until it was too late. They were so stuck, so blinkered by their view of this boat that they let thousands, led thousands to their death. And so did the Pharisees, right here in this story. But not Jesus. Jesus has told us he's here to unstick. He's here to remove the blinkers, to explode those old ways of thinking. He is here for good. He is here for life. And he's here to show us the way and it's not by being stuck in the law or stuck in human ways. He heals, but there is so much more hinted at here. Look at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. We've seen confrontation over the last two weeks escalating, you know, episode by episode. It ramps up and now it explodes. They've had enough. This man must be put an end to his opponent's plan to kill him. Now, as readers, you know where this is going. 
And kind of from here, as one person put it, the, the shadow of the cross looms over the rest of the story. It, it's coming. We know it's there. And Mark includes it here as no accident, not just a coincidence. Mark is making a point for us here. He's saying Jesus is bringing life even as his own death looms. In fact, the link is even closer than that. Jesus is bringing life at the cost of his own death. Why? Because his purpose is so much more than physical healing. His purpose is healing to eternal life. It's gained not by escaping injury or illness. It's gained by escaping sin and receiving forgiveness. Yes, Jesus is here to heal, but he is here to heal truly and deeply. He is here to heal our relationship with God. He's here to heal broken hearts. He's here to heal guilty souls and to welcome into his beautiful and joyful and abundant kingdom. I mean, he explodes all our ways of thinking that that would be possible. He's, he's not here just to help us. He's not here to make us better. He's not even here to show us how to be better people. He is here to die for our forgiveness, to give his life so that we could live. It blows all our thinking out of the water. It is so big and so radical and he offers it freely. To all who believe. Yes, he confronts us. But yes, he heals us too. If we are willing to trust and receive him. Now, if you've never heard that before, or never realised that before, then that is offered to you today. That offer is still on the table. Jesus heals, he restores, and he gives life to you. There is no cost. All you need to do is trust, and it's yours. All his abundance, all his life, all his hope, yours freely, forever. Now, if you have heard that before, And if you have received that before, then rejoice. Because all the abundance, all the riches, all the beauty that have been presented for us here is yours. Be glad. Be glad in Jesus' gift to you. Be glad and test your hearts. Are you who are so glad to receive as glad to offer as Jesus did? I mean, no one wants to compare themselves with Pharisees. We know they're the bad guys in the story. Uh, But is there a risk here? Are we also at risk of being trapped into a certain way of thinking just like they are? I mean, the the, the Pharisees were so trapped, so blinkered by their view of the law, they they couldn't see that they were actually preventing uh, the law from achieving its very purpose. They were preventing it from achieving life and good. Now, we we might not look at the law the same, but is there a danger that we are so trapped in our way of thinking that we can end up doing the same? There might be the ways we do things at church, or where and when and how, 
Could they be a stumbling block, maybe even a prevention for others receiving all the good, all the hope that the church is about, that Jesus is about? Maybe it's our own lives. Maybe the patterns of busyness that we've got ourselves into. Could they be limiting us from sharing Jesus with those who need him? I don't have the time. I I can't make it. I've got this on instead. Might we be at risk of being so caught up in Christian stuff that we forget that actually being core, core to being a Christian is just talking about Jesus and sharing him with other people, whether they know him or not. Is there stuff getting in the way? Maybe stuff we've not even noticed. Maybe patterns of thinking we're not even aware we're so rigidly stuck in. It's a question our Vine Project team has been asking of ourselves and our church. It's a question we all need to ask of ourselves. Are we here for life and for good and to point to Jesus? Or are there things that are holding us back? Jesus is here for life. Jesus is here for good. And we are to be to others what he is to us. Jesus confronts us. He doesn't fit. He offends our ways of thinking. He explodes our paradigms, our assumptions. I mean, not just for the heck of it, as we've seen. He does it for good. Because he is here for better than we can ever imagine. He is the better way. He is fulfilment. He is life. He is hope. He is rest. And it is all in him and in him alone. To either reject or receive. You can either turn back from him and continue in law, in waiting, in lifelessness, or you can turn to him and receive all the joy and all the fulfilment and all the rest and all the life and all of him. Where will you go? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a rescuer. One who is bigger, who is better, who is more wonderful. uh, One who explodes all our ideas and our thoughts and our systems. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for the plenty and freedom and life and hope that is found in him. Father, forgive us where we've turned aside from him where we've gotten stuck in our own systems, where we've added and and followed rules instead of him. And Father, instead, help us to centre our lives on him so that we would be all about him. Help us to live for him, help us to follow him, uh, help us to share him and let nothing get in the way of these things. Father, strip away any obstacles and instead make us all about him, we pray. In his name, amen.